Coming right up on the Van Maren Show, we have an interview with Dr. Joseph Pierce, who once spent time with Alexander Solzhenitsyn and tells us what we can learn from one of the greatest men of the 20th century about where we are today, what comes next, and how we should live our lives. That's coming right up. Hello everyone, my name is Jonathan Van Maren and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifesightNews.com. Many of you will be familiar with Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the author of Gulag Archipelago, the Nobel Prize recipient for literature, and one of the greatest writers of the 20th century. Well, I wanted to have a discussion about him and what we can learn from his life and his work on this podcast, and so I contacted Joseph Pierce, who's a wonderful writer in his own right. He penned a brilliant biography of Solzhenitsyn, which I recommend to everybody, called Solzhenitsyn, A Soul in Exile. He's also written The Quest for Shakespeare, Tolkien, Man and Myth, and a wonderful biography of G.K. Chesterton. So Joseph Pierce agreed to come on the podcast to have a conversation about Solzhenitsyn, his personal experiences with the man in the course of writing the biography, and this is that conversation. Well, I'll start off then. By uh, asking you, how did you first become interested in Alexander Solzhenitsyn? Well, actually, years ago, uh, I wrote a book called Race with the Devil, My Journey from Racial Hatred to Rational Love, which tells the story. But basically, when I was 15 years old, I, I was a, uh, involved in radical politics and was, uh, uh, I suppose you could say, a neo-Nazi. So I was very anti-communist. Um, but not necessarily for the right reasons. Um, but in the, in the 70s, when I was a teenager, I first read the Gulag Archipelago by Solzhenitsyn, and it really did give um, uh, a rationale for, for why communism was evil on a much deeper level, on a historical level, uh, which was, uh, was life-changing for me. So I read more by Solzhenitsyn as a youngster, and then I obviously I, I had my disillusionment with radical politics and my uh, conversion to Catholicism. And then shortly after my conversion to Catholicism, when I was probably in my late 20s or early 30s, uh, Solzhenitsyn wrote a new book called Rebuilding Russia, mm -hmm. uh, which I, 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 was, I was intrigued to find that his ideas uh, were very similar to the distributist ideas of G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc and very much in tune with the paper encyclicals by Leo the Thirteenth and, and um, uh, Pius the Eleventh. So this rekindled my interest in him, uh, uh, and, and so th th then that meant I read all of his newer stuff and eventually wrote to him, which is why I came to write my uh, my biography of him. So uh, we're going to get into that in a minute, but first, just just for our listeners and our viewers, I I feel like Solzhenitsyn was very well known 25 years ago in conservative circles because the key conflict that defined conservatism at the time was the West versus the Soviet Union, or the West versus communism, freedom versus slavery, that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of different conservative writers who actually uh, attribute their conservative conversion to 
to Solzhenitsyn's work, the Gulag Ar- Archipelago. But now, when things are much different, and in fact, your history in radical politics probably has more bearing on some of the current conflicts going on than Solzhenitsyn does, Solzhenitsyn isn't as well-remembered now as he was 20, 25 years ago. Uh, the one resurgence that he's had for those uh, who aren't interested in history, like I am, is that Dr. Jordan Peterson has really been pushing uh, Solzhenitsyn as somebody who's essential to read because Solzhenitsyn, uh, for Peterson, who's so- something of a secular Calvinist, helps to explain why uh, people cannot be trusted. Um, and he wrote the foreword to the, the newly released edition of the Gulag Archipelago. But for those who aren't really familiar with him, um, tell us a bit about Solzhenitsyn's life and why he is such an important figure, such a key figure. I, I would happily do, do that, but if I could just put one caveat upon what you just said. I mean, basically, uh, you're essentially correct, but a, a couple of caveats. First of all, that Solzhenitsyn uh, is extremely well known uh, in his homeland of Russia yes. uh, these days and, had, and has had a huge influence and obviously a beneficial one uh, in leading Russia out of the communist past. Uh, the Gulag Archipelago, in an abridged form approved by Solzhenitsyn's widow, is actually compulsory reading for all Russian uh, high school mm-hmm. students. So every Russian high school student is actually getting Solzhenitsyn's experience of the Soviet tyranny. So he's very influential in his homeland. And I will say, yes, Jordan Peterson, definitely. But the University of Notre Dame Press is, uh, is, is publishing um, uh, posthumously some of Solzhenitsyn's work. Uh, Dr. Daniel uh, Mahoney at Assumption College is doing some wonderful work as well, which is getting recognition. So yes, but is what I would say to that. Um, now, as regard why everybody should know who Solzhenitsyn was, I think, you know, that these things are complex and complicated. But if you want to know who are the, the, the central figures in helping to bring down uh, Soviet, the Soviet empire, you, know, you could argue that p- politically and historically, um, the, the sort of axis between St. John Paul II and, um, uh, and Ronald Reagan, we're ably, ably uh, assisted, if you like, by, as a triumvirate by Margaret Thatcher, uh, was a major contributor to, uh, to, to bringing down the communist empire. Uh, regardless of what we think, by the way, of, 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 of any of those people, that's, that, that's a completely different issue. Yeah. Um, um, but, the, but, the, but the other person that, that stands up uh, as a giant, as a witness, uh, who helped to undermine the legitimacy ethically and morally in the minds of people in the West to the Soviet Union was Alexander Solzhenitsyn. So my generation, growing up as a teenager in the 70s, Solzhenitsyn was so well known that um, just his picture uh, in the newspaper um, is, uh, was sufficient for you to recognize him. You didn't even need a caption. He's one of those faces that was globally recognized as one of the major celebrities of his time. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1970. Um, so uh, a major figure in the 70s. Uh, the, the, the defining moment for me and, and, and the, what defines a, a, a good so-called conservative from a bad so-called conservative, I don't actually like the label, um, uh, is what they think of Solzhenitsyn's Harvard address in 1978. Ah, yes. Yeah, because you know, Solzhenitsyn you know, gave this address at Harvard, shocked a certain type of conservative, and certainly shocked the liberal ascendancy uh, by his critique of Western society, saying, yes, communism is evil, but don't be smug. 
because there's plenty of things wrong in the United States and in Western Europe um, that we need to put right. And that, you know, for, for, for defenders of liberalism in its various forms was a, sh a shocking thing to hear, and they turned on him. And I think in many respects, prior to that Harvard address, Solzhenitsyn was a hero um, who was sort of liked by people on the left and right. Following the Harvard address, he, he polarized opinion, uh, and the, certainly the, uh, the Western establishment turned on him. Well, it's very interesting uh, that you bring that up because you're getting to something I wanted to get into in more depth later because his warning to the West, his Harvard address, kind of encapsulates uh, uh, the, the debate inside conservative circles in the United States today, which is this uh, idea that, no, communism is the great evil, but unfettered capitalism, total access to free markets, these things can also end up crushing people, and that's what we're starting to see now. Uh, and the National Review actually republished the address in its entirety again last year, drew attention to Solzhenitsyn's Harvard address to, to remind people that it was still relevant, whether or not you hated what he had to say, it was still relevant relevant but let's give uh, let's give the listeners a bit of a chronology so he was born i believe during during the revolution his father had died uh during the first world war uh, give us a bit of uh, his life story from there yeah so he was actually born at the end of 1918 so one year after the bolshevik revolution but in the midst of the civil war that, that, mm -hmm. that, that ripped russia apart following the revolution his father actually died in a hunting accident while uh, Solzhenitsyn was in utero. So what his wife, what, what his mother was pregnant with him, his father died in a hunting accident. So he, he was basically an orphan, oh, sorry, he was, he was fatherless from birth, um, uh, raised by his mother, grandmother, aunts. Um, but of course brainwashed because he was born into this atheistic, utopian uh, society and brainwashed into philosophical materialism. By the time he was a teenager, he was an atheist. Um, uh, he was involved with the young communists. Um, and, you know, that's why he considered his arrest to be a blessing. Because for Solzhenitsyn, you know, whatever suffering was necessary to bring, bring someone to the truth was a small price to pay for the truth itself. So mm -hmm. for him, being arrested, being sent to prison was a blessing. Because rather live a life of suffering or even die knowing the truth, rather than living in a lie and being ignorant of the truth. So what did, uh, what did he get sent to the Gulag for, right? When we look at Solzhenitsyn's career, how did his career as a writer start? Um, and then how did he end up uh, as an atheist, uh, faithful member of the Soviet Union to somebody who ended up getting sent to the, to the Gulag archipelago. And then eventually, of course, he became one of the Soviet Union's most prominent, um, most prominent opponents overseas, if not the most prominent opponent overseas. Yeah, certainly he was the most prominent opponent overseas dur during the, the period uh, of, of the late 60s and 70s. No doubt about that at all. Uh, I, I would say I would answer the question first on the macro metaphysical level. Because what Solzhenitsyn insists upon is there are certain uh, key moments, turning points, pivotal moments in his life, and they were all connected with suffering. So the first was the, uh, was, was the arrest. Uh, well, no, the first, he says, was the was experience in the war uh, on the uh, East Prussian front with the, uh, with the Red Army against the retreating uh, Germans and, 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 and the acts of, of, uh, of rape, of, of suicide on the part of Russian, Russians who were arrested that we're fighting for the Germans against the communists. Um, this experience of suffering and of war was the first defining moment. 
then the arrest, and to answer the, part of the bigger question you asked, he was arrested for the hideous crime of, of criticizing Stalin, actually fairly mildly, in private correspondence to a friend. And of course, in the Soviet Union, there's no such thing as private correspondence, uh, which, by the way, in the age of Google, there's no such thing as private correspondence now either. But that's another matter. We're not at, not at the moment being arrested for what we say in emails, but it could happen. But basically, uh, he was um, uh, arrested for writing privately to a friend while he was in serving in the army in World War II, something which was mildly critical of, of, of Stalin. That was enough to get him um, seven years hard labor. Um, and so, so the second thing, suffering was the arrest. And then the third thing was um, being diagnosed at the end of his prison sentence with what was believed to be terminal cancer. So at this point, he believes he's dying. And this precipitated his conversion to Russian Orthodoxy, um, his Christian conversion, and that, of course, changed his life uh, completely. So when all of his writing happened, apart from things he did, learning through memory when he was uh, when he was in prison but all of his published writing basically happened uh, after his conversion so he's always uh, a Christian writer describe for us a bit about the experience that he had in the gulag especially because his description of that experience later on would inspire so many people uh, to become conservative, to reject communism. And so those experiences not only defined his life, as you just pointed out, that suffering really defined his life, but that suffering ended up defining the view of communism in the view of millions and millions of people. So his experience there, that seven years, I've thought before reading through Solzhenitsyn's stuff that if the communists had any idea what sending him off uh, to the camps for seven years of hard labor would actually do to their public image over the next uh, 30 to 40 years, they probably would have thought better of it and just left him alone. It would have done a lot less damage to the regime. But what were some of the experiences he had working in the gulag uh, that ended up informing public opinion around the world on what was going on inside the Soviet Union? Well, the first thing I would say is that Solzhenitsyn's example, real-life example, is incredibly encouraging for all of us living, you know, in, let's face it, in a, in a world that's in crisis in so many ways. Certainly the world in which he was living was in crisis. Uh, it, was, it was certainly at least as tyrannical, if not more tyrannical, than, than where we find ourselves now. Um, but I, I've, I've compared him as, a real, as, a, as an equivalent of uh, an alter ego of Winston Smith, the character in George Orwell's novel 1984. But the difference is, of course, that George Orwell's character, Winston Smith, is basically crushed by the system. Mm. Big Brother wins. And, and, and not only does it kill uh, Winston Smith, which would sort of be a pyrrhic victory because he could still die a hero, it, it, Big Brother gets him to renege on all of his beliefs and gets him to renege on, on the one woman he loves. In other words, it, it is complete and utter spiritual as well as material victory over him. It's, it's basically the victory of, of nihilism uh, and the victory of despair. But it's a work of fiction. Solzhenitsyn, at the very time that Orwell is writing that book, is in a real-life prison and a real-life Big Brother tyranny, and he's decided himself that he will single-handedly take on the monster, fight the dragon, and will win. Now, you'd have thought that's an act of madness. Right? And nobody would believe it, even in a work of fiction, 
No, George Orwell's position is more realistic than Alexander Solzhenitsyn's. And yet what is actually reality? Historical reality is that the one man with courage and using his God-given gifts and being, if you like, guided and guarded by providence can actually overthrow the dragon. And that's the very encouraging lesson I think we get from Alexander Solzhenitsyn's life. Now, it's interesting. I want to get more into his life in a moment, but I want to pull, pull on a thread uh, that you just tugged loose there. One of the bo- interesting books I read last year was a book by Douglas Murray called The Madness of Crowds, where he's taking a look at the, the speech codes and sort of the top-down enforcement of wokeness in society. And one of the things that he said, I, I had him on this podcast last year, one of the things that he said that I found very interesting and, and actually um, applies directly to what you're saying about Solzhenitsyn and uh, George Orwell's 1984, is he said that one of the reasons that the powers that be, that the elites need to force people to not only believe what they believe, but to verbalize what they verbalize. So you need to call a biological male a female, even if you know that not to be the case. You have to say phrases like pregnant men, phrases like um, her penis. Those are phrases that you have to say that are published in newspapers. And I'd, I'd never really thought about it from this angle before, but Douglas Murray says one of the reasons they have to force people to say it is because when you force people to say something they know and not to be true, it is profound demoralizing and humiliating and it contributes to the breaking of their spirit that was an angle i had not considered before the idea of forcing people to say things they know to be a lie as a method of of demoralizing and crushing them what do you think solzhenitsyn's experience and george orwell's 1984 have to tell us about the age that we live in now this is a diversion but i think a worthwhile one well, yeah, I, th- I think it, it, it is certainly a worthwhile diversion or tangent because it does uh, relate to what we're talking about here, is that we are actually living in tyrannical times. It is basically impossible now for someone who believes what humanity's always believed uh, about humanity to actually have a position in a secular university or college. They will be fired. Um, and they're not even allowed anymore to remain silent. As you say, they have to pay lip service to it, and literal lip service. They have to speak openly that they conform to this nightmare ideology. So it's very, the similarities with Soviet communism are palpable and really unmistakable. Um, and um, that's why it takes courage, and that's why I think the Solzhenitsyn can be a great inspiration for us, because he shows us that when things get tough, when the tyranny starts tightening the screws on the dissidents within its midst uh, in the West, um, that we have to have the coverage of our convictions, we have to understand that the word martyr means witness, and we have to embrace martyrdom if that is what's necessary. As Solzhenitsyn did, Mm -hmm. he was willing to die um, in order to fight the dragon. By the grace of God, he lived to a ripe old age, but he might not have done. So if you want to uh, uh, tread water in the, in the quicksand with me for a moment on that subject, well, one of the things that I find interesting, because I do want to get into his warning to the West, is that Solzhenitsyn now, um, like when he passed away, all of his obituaries and eulogies had to mention the fact that he was a supporter of Vladimir Putin. And one of the things I found interesting is, so a couple of years ago, I went with a friend to Russia on a research trip. We went to the Solzhenitsyn house for the diaspora 
uh, in Moscow. Uh, we traveled all over the place. We interviewed a lot of members of the Russian Orthodox clergy to get an idea of what they were at, what they actually thought about things in Russia. And one of the things that really came out, which I found to be fascinating, was that for them coming out of the long dark night of Soviet communism and, and looking at the West, who's now once again flirting with the ideologies of Karl Marx, they kind of think that we're insane. And when you look at the, the headlines in our, in our newspapers about, you know, pregnant men and, and things like that, some days one wonders why people hate the West. Other days one doesn't have to wonder because we, we, we've become fundamentally ridiculous, especially in the eyes of, of prouder cultures with real histories like Russia for whatever you think of it is. And so one of the things that, that I found really interesting is that there's this idea among a lot of the Russian clergy that I spoke with that the West is on the cusp of making exactly the same mistake uh, that the Russians already endured, went through, are now coming out of, and that to a degree the West and Russia are, are changing places. Uh, Vladimir Putin, although... His faith is uh, is obviously not the uh, orthodox sort because he openly uh, says in interviews that he sees Russian orthodoxy as a decent replacement for communism as a unifying national ideal rather than as, as, as a personal faith. What do you think of this idea that, that Russia has seen what they've gone through are rejecting it just as the West is accepting a lot of those ideas that wreaked such havoc for so long? Well, there's a few things I'd like to say in, in response to that. The first is that Solzhenitsyn, when he visited Italy shortly after he was exiled from the Soviet Union, was, um, uh, I don't know if alarmed is the right word, but certainly um, disappointed to see the amount of communist graffiti uh, you know, in, in Italian cities on the walls. And his response was, a dose of the real thing would do them good. Uh, in other words, that these people do not understand the fire that they're playing with. And I've certainly, you know, the part of the tyranny in which we're living is to keep people ignorant of the past, because the past teaches us wisdom. It's the, it's the collective experience of humanity. We have talked about the history of Western civilization for 3,000 years, Christendom for 2,000 years. Um, so uh, this teaches us to understand who we are. If you want to start with a utopia and a tabula rasa that you can reinvent the human on, you have to make people ignorant of the past, ignorant of history. And that's why we're seeing the reemergence amongst the, those who know nothing about history, the young people, of admiration for Karl Marx, Lenin, Che Guevara, because they're completely ignorant of the tens of millions of people killed uh, by these people. These are the biggest mass murders in history, and they're still getting um, support from young people because the young people know nothing about it. Another valuable thing about Solzhenitsyn is he's a witness um, that we can keep bringing out. And of course, they don't like him, and that's one of the reasons they don't like him. As regards to one other question, whether the, the, the East and the West are flipping, mm -hmm. there's certainly an irony here. There's a, there's a divine comedy at work. I mean, we, we, as Christians, we do know that God's in control, that he, everything is in his omnipresence, right? There's no future for God. There's no past for God. It's all in his omnipresence. There's a divine comedy going on, a delicious irony that now Russia is much more conservative than uh, the West, which is much more socialist. Um, uh, we're playing you know, a crazy game here. Um, and, you know, let, let me give you an example. When uh, you used the word penis earlier, so I assume we, we're, we're allowed to use adult words on the, on the podcast here. When the radical feminist movement, Pussy Riot, um, uh, um, stripped down 
to, to top this in Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris, the clergy, the, the Catholic clergy uh, and, 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 and politicians and the establishment didn't know what to do. They were embarrassed because the, the, the West is so mixed up now that the radical homosexual agenda it, it, it has a, a, a smell of virtue about it. So, you know, they got away with it. No one was charged. Um, you know, children, people in mass had to, had to tolerate that. Um, but when Pussy Riot did the same thing in Moscow, um, they were thrown in prison. And um, the government passed a new law saying that, well, next time anything like that happens, when, when, when basically people are blaspheming, blaspheming religious spaces, they will be sent to prison for five years. Needless to say, there's been no recurrence of Pussy Riot's activities uh, in, in sacred spaces in, in Moscow. So the, so the point is, you know, that, that Russia is responding in a traditional moral way to this affront on human dignity and upon religious practice, whereas the West has no courage. And that was one of the things that Solzhenitsyn spoke about, is that basically the West had lost its courage. Well, the interesting thing uh, that you say about that is, is some people some people might say, well, this was an infringement on Pussy Riot's freedom of speech and blah blah blah. But an in- an interesting comment on on how it's flipped here is that is there's a, there's a great book by Natalia Smolkin called No Sacred Space Stays Empty: A History of Soviet Atheism. It's a really I- interesting book, and she talks about how a society has to believe something; it has to have a set of animating beliefs. And so, in the UK and Scotland, you have people getting visited by the cops for tweeting things offensive to transgender people and in Russia you have Pussy Riot getting arrested for desecrating a cathedral. Regardless of what you think of of Pussy Riot getting arrested both societies have blasphemy laws. Uh, The only difference is what you're permitted to blaspheme in those societies which is really indicative of of where we're at and and look it's Russia has its problems everybody knows this um you know, Putin, Putin's uh, opponents have a very bad habit of doing careless things on balconies. But at the same time, just from, from, from the ground up, looking at what the people think, it's just fascinating to me to see people who are saying, that experiment didn't work, we want to reject that, you guys are obviously insane because you believe men can get pregnant. And from where I'm sitting, that, that, that is hard to disagree with. And people can say, uh, as one recent author did, one of, uh, of Putin's recent biographers, he said, Putin is just taking advantage Advantage of of people's um, fear about progressivism uh, to stoke anti-Western uh, hatred, and my response to that would be, well, we're the ones giving them the fodder for the fire here. He's not making it up when he says the West can no longer identify males or females. That's something we did to ourselves, and in less than a decade. Yeah, well, let, let, let's transcend the the, the, the nitty gritty politics and look at the big issue here. Right, there's the anarchy does not exist except as a very briefly lived vacuum before tyranny takes, takes its place. Another, and, and, and this is summed up, by the way, perfectly and poetically by Oscar Wilde when he described anarchy as freedom's own Judas. All right? So there's always has to be law. Now, the point is, does the law protect the strong against the weak? Or does it protect the weak against the strong? Now, Christianity, uh, as, as, as the core belief of a culture, always privileges the poor, always privileges the dignity of the human person. So therefore, it actually protects the the weakest in society, including obviously, especially these days, the unborn. Now, the absence of that, what we have, the pride movement, is basically Nietzschean, which is where rights empower the strong to do what they want and to hell with the weak. 
that's where we're at at the moment. So what, where, what, whose side are we on in this? Are we on the side of the whole history of humanity, which has preserved religious freedom by making an offense to desecrate an act of worship uh, in, 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 a, in a sacred space? Or are we on the side of radical pol uh, political people who believe in marching into churches and desecrating that religious space? Because Pussy Riot are actually doing the same thing that Stalin's troops did, that the Gestapo did, that basically there was no sacred space. The, the state superseded religion. And going right back to Antigone uh, and the ancient drama of Sophocles, this is a perennial issue. To what extent does the secular power have the right to uh, usurp religious freedom? And in healthy societies, it does not have the right to do that. So before we get um, more into uh, a Solzhenitsyn's warning to the West, because we, we we took a couple of worthwhile um, um, uh, detours here, maybe uh, just explain to the listeners, what was the chronology? Uh, Solzhenitsyn got out of the camp seven years, forced labor in the Gulag Archipelago. What, how did his career unfold from there? So he was released in 1952. Uh, he had cancer uh, from which he... Believe, which he believed was terminal, but he, he made a recovery from that cancer. And from 1952 onwards, he began writing. And as Providence would have it, 1953, so just after he was released from the camps, Joseph Stalin dies. Now, there's a brief period after Stalin dies when basically everybody is so relieved, relieved that the tyrant is dead. There's a very brief period of, of freedom where at least not anti-communism, but anti-Stalinism was not just permitted, but encouraged. So in that brief period, uh, following Stalin's death, you know, Solzhenitsyn's book, um, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, was published in the early 60s. Um, and uh, of course, it was hugely successful. And then the communists began to realize, well, actually, you know, anti-Stalinism is becoming anti-communism. And then the lid came down again. But by this time, Solzhenitsyn was a, a well-known published author, not just in Russia, uh, but also now was known in the West. So his future books, although they were banned in the Soviet Union, were smuggled out to the West um, and were being published and very widely read. Uh, and uh, even within the Soviet Union, in Samizdat, in other words, in unpublished manuscript form, they were being handed around and very widely read. So um, basically, from the 50s, and especially the 60s, Solzhenitsyn became a major voice of for freedom from Soviet tyranny, both within the Soviet Union and within the wider world. So when did the Gulag Archipelago make it out of Russia and to publication? I think, if I remember correctly, the first, uh, the first issue was, the first because it's a three volumes, it's published in three volumes. Volume one, I think, was published in 1970 uh, and was hugely uh, impactful um, and made Solzhenitsyn, and he was, received the, the uh, Nobel Prize for Literature in the same year, at which point, really, he became, in some senses, you know, uh, too hot to handle for the Soviet uh, Union, because if he was not known or not known very widely, he could just be killed. And in fact, we do know from the releasing of the KGB files uh, following the, the, you know, the, the, the downfall of communism that there was an assassination attempt on Solzhenitsyn, I think, in 1972 or 1973, before he was exiled which failed, actually using the same toxins that the KGB later um, uh, perfected uh, and, and had a few successfully to assassinate other people. But he got very sick. No one knew what the reason was. He 
almost died but recovered. It seems that you know some ways that God was looking after Solzhenitsyn. He gets very serious cancer, and there's a, there's a, there's a there, it, he's healed. I hesitate to say miraculously, but it was believed to be terminal, and he was healed. And there's an attempt to assassinate him by the KGB, and he survived. And so that, from there he goes to the West, correct? It's interesting, when I went to the Solzhenitsyn house for the diaspora, I knew uh, about his impact in regards to the the, the uh, reputation of the Soviet Union, the Gulag Archipelago, um, a lot of his literature, August 1914, the First Circle, books like that. I had not been aware of the extent of his work of gathering all of the testimonies of those who had fled Russia in exile and, and bringing them all together to ensure basically that there was this repository of knowledge from Russia prior to, to, the, to communism. I hadn't been aware of the extent of that work. It was quite phenomenal to be able to tour those facilities and to really learn in depth what Solzhenitsyn had done to preserve pre-communist Russia. The tour guide had a really interesting way of putting it. She said, if, if you stop and you're very quiet, uh, his warmth is still in the building. Uh, it, was, it was really, really interesting, of course, because a lot of his personal handwriting uh, uh, documents and things like that were, were there. So when he left to the West, what did his career look like after that? He's one of the, he's one of the exiles, interestingly, whose love for Russia was, was so pure that he wanted to return the moment he could, as opposed to many others who at that point had, uh, had made their peace and stayed away. Yeah, not only did he want to return, but again, a great testimony to his faith. Um, uh, he believed that he would. In other words, you know, he believed that he would outlive the Soviet monster because obviously he wasn't expecting to be allowed back <laughs> while the Soviet Union was in place. But he, he stated upon, uh, upon his exile in 1974, I fully expect to return. So, you know, he, he had faith that, that, that basically the Soviet communist thing was unsustainable. Something, by the way, very brief tangent, so is this radical liberal pride thing. It's unsustainable. You know, we don't have to destroy it. It's, it's in the process of destroying itself. It's a, it's a long and sordid suicide, and perhaps not particularly long. Um, but, but so he, he knew that what, the, what the Soviet Union was doing was unsustainable. He, he, he went back in 1994 um, and spent the last 14 years of his life back in his homeland. So when he arrived in the West in 1974, moved to Switzerland first and then, then to Vermont in the United States, he was lionized and lauded basically all of sundry. Um, but people began to be a little bit alarmed by, by the fact that he wasn't conforming to the, the Western liberal understanding of things. So for instance, first warning signs for the liberals was he went to Spain. And at this time, Spain was still under the rule of General Franco. So, you know, it was absolutely bet noir. This was the last remnant of fascism. And he said, well, you know, I, I'm astonished at how much freedom there is in Spain. You know, no, there's no one stopping me from going from one, or any other Spaniard, from going one part of Spain to another part of Spain. There's all sorts of uh, publications that I can buy that, that, that have different viewpoints that you would never get in the Soviet Union. I said, compared with the Soviet Union, uh, Spain is a paradise of freedom. Now, you imagine for the left who hate the fascism of Franco, that's an absolute uh, nightmare scenario because they have this person that everyone is seeing as a, a courageous hero um, uh, saying things which they see as being fascist, which of course it wasn't. Now, if you'll indulge me, this, I, I've always wanted to know this because Solzhenitsyn has always been one of my heroes for all of the obvious cliched and boring reasons. And 
you actually got to meet him and spend time with him. So first of all, he was he was famously reclusive. He didn't talk to Western authors very much. How did you manage to not only connect with him, but get him to respond to you? And then uh, how did he agree to spend time with you? For starters. I've, spoke, I've spoken about the hand of providence um, in Solzhenitsyn's life. Well, I, I certainly see it in, in my own because there's no rational reason why he should have said yes to, 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 to me. Uh, at, the, at the time, first of all, I, had no, I have no idea now how I found his home address in Russia. No idea how I got it. Uh, somehow or other, I did get it. Uh, and I wrote to him. And, and my attitude was he's not going to reply. Mm-hmm. But I thought if he does reply, he's going to say no, but at least I'll have a letter from Alexander Solzhenitsyn and that, well, that's, worth, that's worth something in itself to me. Um, so it's a win, you know, what, what do I have to lose? And then imagine my astonishment, because you're completely correct, because the Western media had treated him so badly, he basically said, I'm not speaking to, to, to Western, author, uh, Western journalists anymore, I'm done. So he had not spoken to Western writers for several years. When he replies to my uh, letter, an old-fashioned letter, saying, yes, uh, he would agree to be interviewed by me. He put me in touch with two of his sons who speak fluent English because they were obviously educated uh, uh, in the United States and England um, and said, uh, arranged to, uh, to come to, to Russia to, 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 to interview me. for the. I'll, I'll cooperate with your plans for a book. So armed with this letter from Solzhenitsyn, I go to my publisher, who is HarperCollins in the UK, which is where I was living at the time. Armed with this letter, I said, you have to give me a contract to write a book on Solzhenitsyn and you have to give me $5,000 £5, on top to actually pay for my trip to, uh, to, to Russia uh, to, to interview him. And they looked at the letter, saw the signature, said, no problem. <laughs> so, you know, so, uh, so I went there, I interviewed him. And I, why, why? Now, the only, there's only two possible reasons. In my, at the time I wrote the letter, I'd only had one book published. It was my biography of Chesterton, my first book. No other book. So I'm a nobody, right? Um, uh, but I mentioned that because, I mean, this is my CV, right? one book. So I mentioned I'd, I'd, I'd written a book on Chesterton, and I said that I don't believe, the reason I want to write a book on Solzhenitsyn, that I don't believe any of the previous biographies have paid due attention to the, the, the centrality of his Christian faith, to his orthodoxy, to, um, to, to, to his life and work. So I assume when he said yes, that... He agreed with me as regards the previous Michael Scammell and some of the other biographers had um, not paid due deference uh, to his, uh, the, the importance of his Christianity. So I assumed that was the reason, which I'm sure it was. But when I got to his home, before he came down to see me, his wife took me into a different room and showed me some bookshelves. And the top shelf was the Ignatius Press collected works of G.K. Chesterton. So Solzhenitsyn was, uh, is an admirer of Chesterton. Uh, and so that also, that magic word Chesterton, I think was my ticket to Solzhenitsyn. So the man over my, my shoulder there, uh, Chesterton, I have so much, I, I say that uh, under grace, he's the single most important influence on my conversion. Or, you know, so, but also he, he's the single most important influence probably in, in my getting uh, the interview with Solzhenitsyn. I have a lot to thank that man for. The sentence, my biography of Chesterton was my ticket to Solzhenitsyn, uh, is quite the sentence. 
because Solzhenitsyn, yeah, won the Nobel Prize in Literature, uh, was the most powerful force opposing the Soviet Union and, con- and contributing to exposing what it was. And so if you'll indulge me, I'm just going to ask you a few questions um, that because you've met him and, 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 and he's gone and the opportunity to meet him is, is now long gone. What was, it, what was it like to meet him? Describe it. Well, first of all, I mean, uh, I, I was at... My first moments when he walked into the room, I, 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 I sort of um, melted in it from being a professional writer to being a fan yeah. uh, psychologically. I couldn't help it because he walks into the room. It's this person that, you know, he's got a very dis- distinct look, okay? Yeah. So, you know, uh, so he walks into the room and I, I, I just, I'm a fan for a moment because I, I, I overcome that. But as regards um, the impression that, 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 that of him that, that, if you like, countered my preconceptions first of all he has a great sense of humor he has an infectious chuckle so he would be saying things and, and he would he would chuckle um, um, and so this was an aspect of him the humorous Solzhenitsyn because we normally see him as the sort of the Jeremiah mm-hmm. prophet who's very stern and serious and telling us we're going ahead unless we change our ways yeah you, you spend the first three pages of your second edition describing that view of him Exactly. And so uh, to me, this was very refreshing, right? Because, I mean, Chesterton's my kind of guy, right? Uh, joie de vivre, uh, this jollity, this, 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 you know, why, you know William Booth said, um, founder of the Salvation Army, why should the devil have all the best tunes? Well, so uh, Chesterton seemed to say, why should uh, the devil have all the best jokes, right? He, he had fun with orthodoxy. That's me, right? I'm, I'm, I'm full of this Chester Berlockian rambunctiousness. So the sort of doer, sort of even what they want to say puritanical Solzhenitsyn was an aspect of his Solzhenitsyn character, which I sort of tolerated, but didn't necessarily uh, enjoy. But I realized when I got there, this was not the real Solzhenitsyn. And his sons told me that he has a great power to mimic and he could mimic politicians and celebrities so well that they would literally be rolling on the floor guffawing with laughter. It was so funny. So this sort of really rambunctious Solzhenitsyn was something I wanted to, 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 to convey. The other thing about him were his eyes. When you, when you actually you, you held his gaze, first of all, he had very striking China blue eyes. And the thing about them was on the surface, they seemed very youthful, almost mischievous. That chuckle seemed to be there on the surface. But if you held the gaze, you saw depths and depths of suffering and knowledge and wisdom in there. Now, of course, I don't know whether this is me subjectively uh, projecting that because that's what I, how I'm receiving it psychologically or whether it's objectively there. But either way, it reminded me, in fact, you know, I've written books on Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings as well. Remind me of the character of Grizzlebeard, uh, sorry, Treebeard, Grizzlebeard's Belloc, it doesn't matter. Treebeard um, in the Lord of the Rings. And again, you know, the oldest creature in Middle Earth, apart from Tom Bombard, has lived for thousands of years, and yet he's got this sense of humor, but his eyes are like a well of wisdom and experience, and yet on the surface there's this joie de vivre, this joy of being alive. That is how Solzhenitsyn uh, came across to me, and it was very refreshing. And I, I tried to get something of that over as far as it is possible in my in my biography of him. How much time did you spend with him? Just one weekend, but we were there all day. So we we, we know it. He I was picked up by his son Yermolai, 
the oldest of his three sons from my hotel. He drove me out to their uh, Solzhenitsyn's home, which is probably about maybe a half an hour drive outside the city in the beautiful pine woods. Um, and we were sitting around a, a circular table, Solzhenitsyn to my right, Yermolai to my left, a round table. And Solzhenitsyn would, would, I'd ask Solzhenitsyn questions looking at him. He'd reply looking at me. Then we'd both turn to Yermolai who would translate because Solzhenitsyn would reply in Russian. But the other thing was very interesting was that I knew that Solzhenitsyn knew what I was saying. In other words, his English was good. I think that Solzhenitsyn being Solzhenitsyn, he didn't want to be replying in pidgin English. He wanted precision. Mm. And he knew that his son, who was educated, I think, at Eton College, so, you know, most prestigious high school in England, and then, it, I, I think, at Yale University, right? So his English was impeccable, and his Russian is impeccable, because they always spoke Russian at home, that he would get me more precise. But once or twice, Solzhenitsyn corrected him. Basically, in Russia, saying, no, that's not what I said. And then they'd have a little exchange, and then, then Yermolai would rephrase the reply. So, you know, that, uh, that um, clearly Solzhenitsyn had a good grasp of English, even though he chose not to speak in it. So when you were talking to, to Solzhenitsyn, and because you're, you're writing a book, of course, and you've read the other biographies, so what you're really looking for is something nobody else has. Was there any time he said something and you thought, that's it, nobody else has that, I've got that? Well, um, the, the, the key thing that I wanted to, to, to find out is to what extent was he knowledgeable about uh, the Catholic um, literary revival in the West. In other words, to what extent is he such a Russophile or Slavophile, if you like, that he knows about the Russian thing, the Russian experience, but as regards Western culture, um, uh, you know, was he ignorant or was he really au fait with, with the good things that had happened because of the Catholic revival? So, for instance, one phrase, one, one statement he said in his interview to me, which I think is one of the best things he ever said, so this is something I'm very pleased with. Uh, uh, I said, you know, what, what about the, the claims that you're a Slavophile and that you're opposed to the West? He said, no, I see Russia as part of the West. He said, if the Iron Curtain had come down and the cream of Western civilization had come in over the top, I would have rejoiced. He said, but the Russian curtain went up and all the dregs of Western lowlife culture came in. And that's what I oppose. In other words, he, 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 he sees the problem as being the Enlightenment. He sees basically Christendom as being something that unites Russia uh, and the West. Um, and, and Christendom is Western civilization. He absolutely believes that Russia is part of that civilization, but he is opposed to the Enlightenment. And, and, and to be fair to him, you know, Marxism, which, uh, which obviously his, his country succumbed to, was uh, the ideas of two Germans, two German Jews who spent most of their time in England. So actually Marxism was a Western, if you like, you can say it, Western cultural imperialism, right, that the intelligentsia, of, of, of Russia who were westernized imposed upon the Russian people. Um, so, you know, he, he, can, he can even say that communism's not a Russian problem. It's a, an enlightenment problem, a Western, modern Western problem that Russia was poisoned by. So, you know, this differentiation between Christendom, which is good, uh, and Russia being part of this uh, union of what it is to be a Christian, uh, is good, but the ideas of modern Western philosophy from the time of the Enlightenment onwards is evil and needs to be countered. 
and and with that i think we should agree with him so that brings me to the the, the final subject here which is is Solzhenitsyn's warning to the West, which is looking a lot more prescient today than it, than, than it did when he was giving it. Perhaps the West looked even stronger when it had communism to oppose. And so now, um, Peter Hitchens once said, and uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's something peculiar to the, to the way he writes, but he said, sometimes I miss the Berlin Wall because while it was up, it kept radical communism behind it and we couldn't pretend that it was something good. But once the wall came down, it's no longer contained in such a way that we can, we can actively oppose it. I always thought that was an interesting formulation. And so what, what key critiques that Solzhenitsyn made of the West do you think are true today and have proved prophetic? Well, I would actually begin by talking about some words from Cardinal Savar's new book, um, The Day is Now Far Spent, where he refers to um, uh, capitalism and communism as, two, uh, as twin brothers. And the thing that they have in common, their, their genotype, if you like, as brothers, is materialism philosophical materialism. And I think that with all due deference to, to, to Pete Hitchens, I, 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 I believe that, that uh, the Cold War was very two-dimensional. That yes, it did keep communism in its place, but it didn't stop rampant materialism from undermining all that was good, true, and beautiful in Western civilization. So in other words, the 1960s happened while, during the Cold War. Um, uh, the, the beginning of the pride movement, the sexual revolution began during the Cold War. So I think it's an oversimplification. I, I rejoice that the burning wall is down, and I rejoice that perhaps that the West will be rekindled, uh, the faith of the West will be rekindled, and good, solid politics will be rekindled from the East, because I've just come back a few weeks ago from Budapest in Hungary. There's, yeah. lots, there's lots of very good things happening in, East, in Central and Eastern Europe, and it may well be that now the burning wall is down and these people know what communism is, that they will be the ones that the light that we should be looking toward, the light in the East, if you like. So you think Viktor Orban is the sort of politician that should give us hope? Yes. I mean, obviously, I'm not, I'm not going to completely give uh, carte blanche endorsement to any politician. <laughs> Why? I, I know enough <laughs> about politicians and politics. But I do think that what Hungary is endeavoring to do against the tyranny of the European Union uh, in refusing to, uh, to allow um, mass Muslim immigration, in resisting efforts to globalize um, Europe to such a degree that national sovereignty no longer exists. I think that sort of resistance is necessary uh, for the salvation of Western civilization. And in that sense, I do see Hungary as, 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 as a, a very important, um, I would say an heroic nation at the moment fighting for the, for the good against the tyrants. So what would Solzhenitsyn say now looking at, at sort of what looks like, you know, stage four cancer in the West. If you look at, again, back to our previous, our previous conversation, once you start to say that men can get pregnant and things like this, there's not a whole lot left. Uh, that you can offload at that point when you've offloaded even you know the basic concept of biological reality. So we know where this has led. What would Solzhenitsyn say about where we are now? There are certain voices that you look at and you wish you could you could know what they'd thought. And as somebody who met with him and spoke with him and wrote a biography of him, I thought maybe you could tell us what you think he'd say. Well, you know, I I, I think he would find it difficult to resist the 
temptation to say I told you so <laughs> uh, and invite us to go back and, and, and read uh, the Harvard address again um, uh, and see it as, a, as basically the words of a prophet because the, 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 what's, what's come to pass if anything is even worse than he envisaged but certainly it's, a, uh, it's an example of what he envisaged but what I would say, I don't know if he would say this but I would say it um, is that what we're seeing is the destruction of pride Pride precedes the fall. It's, a, it, 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 it's something which is part of a Christian understanding of reality. The movement that calls itself proud uh, is, is just leading towards its own fall. What we have to worry about is what we do about it. In other words, do we have the courage to be witnesses? And the first thing we have to be is holy, because that's the greatest witness we can be, is to grow in holiness even as the tyranny is, is all around us. We see it in human history, not only in the catacombs, but as an Englishman, you know, the, the 300 years of persecution, including 150 years of execution uh, that, that surrounded the, the Catholic Church in England, and the English martyrs and their witness. They're in heaven. And ultimately, let's get this right, right? The end of the world for all of us is when we die. I'm older than you. My, my, my eyes are already on the finishing line. Reality is in eternity. This is merely, if you like, a purgatorial staging post. We should not be too invested in the world. Evil is always in process of killing itself. Of course, it kills innocent people at the same time. That's the tragedy. But we also believe there's a judge in heaven who's, uh, who, who would ensure that justice is done. So innocent victims are not just wasted. For those re readers and listeners who haven't picked up Solzhenitsyn, I know some of his stuff is pretty tough. Uh, some of his novels are harder to get into than others. Uh, what would you what would you advise people start with? I think everybody should read some of him. You, I don't think you can be well rounded um, in terms of uh, of your reading list if you haven't read any Solzhenitsyn. Where would you advise people to start? I, I agree with you. I think that that if if you're going to be a well rounded reader and you're talking about the hundred most important books that everybody should read, Solzhenitsyn would certainly be on that list, probably with several books. But I would say the easiest place to start because it's the shortest is One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich which is a very short it's a novella, not much more than 100 pages in length, 120 or so pages. It basically covers in sort of quasi-fictional form because it's based upon Solzhenitsyn's own experience and the protagonist is quite clearly a thinly veiled autobiographical Solzhenitsyn figure in some ways that it's just one day in the labor camp. And, and what that means from the point of view of the human spirit, do we surrender to the tyranny? Or do we resist it? And if we resist it, how do we resist it? With a stoic pride, which is basically brittle and broken, or with a Christian resilience? And all of that is packed into that 120 or so pages. So I would certainly say start there. If you want to go further, people should at least, there's now an abridged version of the Gulag Archipelago. Mm -hmm. So the three volumes have been abridged into just one volume. And for an understanding of what um, secular fundamentalism can do in terms of tyranny, uh, reading the Gulag Archipelago really is 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 is, uh, is necessary. Final question that I can't quite resist is when when you look back at the time you spent with Solzhenitsyn, what's the memory that stands out? Well, first of all, uh, I, I, I I I'm moved to to say Domine non sum dignus. Um, that the most important thing is that why me? Uh, I'm 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 not worthy to have been given that great blessing, that great privilege. So for me, you know, if I talk about what are the most important moments in my life, obviously my reception to the Catholic Church would be there. But certainly my meeting with Solzhenitsyn uh, in, in Moscow would be right up there. 
um, I'm not worthy, I'm greatly privileged, and you know, whenever I find myself having a bad day, I, I, I count my blessings. And, and having met Solzhenitsyn is one of the greatest blessings I've ever, I've ever received. Thank you, Lord. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure. God bless you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Joseph Pierce, the Solzhenitsyn biographer, scholar, and author. You can check him out online. Just Google Joseph Pierce. You'll find a wealth of interesting articles that he's written. And again, I do highly recommend his biography, Solzhenitsyn, A Soul in Exile. If you want to check out other shows, head over to LifeSiteNews.com. Click on the podcast tab. We're on YouTube. We're on all of the different podcast platforms. And you can check out past interviews. We air every week on Wednesday. Thank you so much for joining us this week. And we do hope you'll join us again next week.